you turn with me in a Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, so, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, so we have been going through the book of Exodus, which is one of the uh, most important books, sort of the foundational story of the Old Testament. And uh, the book of Exodus tells the story of the people of Israel. Quentin, I think, is this? Okay, there we go. book of Exodus tells the story of the people of Israel who God brought out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and to freedom, but also to belonging to him. And so we've called this sermon series From Bondage to Belonging, because that's the story of the book of Exodus as a whole. Uh, but we're about halfway through the book of Exodus, and we've sort of stopped to go more slowly through probably one of the most famous sections of Exodus, which is the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments come in the middle of this story, after God has rescued the people who were enslaved and oppressed in the land of Egypt, and brought them out, and now he's teaching them, this is how I want you to treat each other. And this is how I want you to live in relationship to me. So the Ten Commandments, the first four focus on our relationship with God and the priority of God above everything else. And the last six focus on our relationship with one another and what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we've been going through these commandments one by one and looking at them in, in some depth. Um, and for each of the commandments, we've looked at how it's a manual, uh, like a car manual that shows us God's good design for us, how he made us to live well, and also how it's a mirror that shows us how we've fallen short of that design, how, that it shows us our sin. Uh, but third, how it's a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior, who fulfilled these commands on our behalf. And fourth, how it's a guide that shows us in practical ways God's path for us to live. So... Um, uh, this morning, we are looking at commandment number eight, which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Um, uh, Quentin, if you have an extra battery, just bring, uh, can you just bring it up to me and I'll get it hooked up. Um, and uh, we are looking at uh, verse 15 of Exodus chapter 20. How's that? You got, got to unmute it. That's all right? All right. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. I've got a green light here. Yep, that sounds good. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. All right, here we go. It's a very short verse. You shall not steal. During the years that I lived in New Haven, I had three bikes stolen. One I had left outdoors. Uh, when I was in college for a whole winter locked to a bike rack. That was stupid on my part. The second, I, was, I thought, well, I'll gradually learn from these things. So the second uh, was stolen from the entryway of the two-family house uh, where Jane and I were living shortly after we got married. Somebody from the upstairs apartment or visiting the upstairs apartment had left the front door a little bit ajar, had not closed it securely, uh, and it was left ajar all night and in the morning, my bike was stolen, and the other four or five bikes were left in the entryway. A couple years later, I locked my third bike to a no-parking sign in a residential neighborhood. 
It had a U-lock, which is the right kind of bike lock to use if you know bike locks, if you've been, and, and it was locked to a 10-foot tall metal pole. I come back a few hours later, the metal pole has been lifted out of the ground, it's now laying on the ground, and the bike is nowhere to be seen. Uh, I had one victory in the bike stealing world. Once, in my 20 years in New Haven, once two guys tried to mug me while I was riding my bike late at night. And they punched me on the side of the head, I kept my balance, and I kept on riding, and I kept my bike and everything else along with it. Now, when Jane heard about it, I was absolutely prohibited from riding my bike through the middle of the New Haven Green at 9 o'clock at night, which probably wasn't a wise idea in the first place. Anyway, as you can see, I was a naive kid and needed gradual instruction in not being so gullible. Anyway, looking back, none of these incidents caused me lasting harm. There are far more significant things that could have been stolen from me, and there are far other more personally significant losses that I felt far more deeply. But still, every time my bike was stolen, it was a nuisance and a significant expense. Of course, other forms of theft feel far more invasive and personally threatening. If your house has been broken into, it's normal to feel unsettled for quite some time. If people are regularly getting mugged or having their purses snatched in your neighborhood, everyone feels more on edge. It affects everyone's quality of life, not just the people who got mugged or who got their wallets or purses taken. If a, family, if a friend or family member tells you, I really need to borrow some money and I'll pay you back soon, and then they take the money, squander the money, and disappear, a relationship has been broken. Stealing might not be as bad as the two commandments we looked at the last two weeks, murder and adultery, but it has significant consequences. Now, as we've done with each of the commandments, we'll look at this one under these four headings. So first, how is this commandment a manual that shows us God's good design? Why is this a good rule? On the surface, this commandment is simple, straightforward, and self-evident. Don't take what isn't yours. Respect other people's property just like you want them to respect yours. This is not an idea that is unique to the Bible. Every nation in the world has laws on the books against stealing. It doesn't require complicated reasoning. People all over the world know that stealing is wrong. Parents tell their children, teachers tell their students, managers tell their employees, don't steal, right? No one wants to leave here today and find that your house has been broken into or that your bank account has been hacked or that your wallet has gone missing or that your car has been stolen. So, is this commandment just telling us what we already know? Well, in one sense, yes. The Bible does reaffirm our natural moral sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. But the Bible does more than that. It tells us why we have an inner sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. It's because God made us and all human beings in his image. So the, and one of the things about being made in God's image is we have an awareness of what is right and wrong. Even people who don't believe in God at all or who don't think much about God in their daily life still retain some awareness of God's truth and God's moral boundaries. We all know that murder, stealing, lying are wrong because God has planted that sense of right and wrong in our hearts, but the Bible doesn't just tell us what we already know. It shows us why stealing is wrong at a deeper level. You see, according to the Bible, stealing isn't just an offense against someone else's private property. 
And it's not just an offense against society in general, even though it is both of those things. Stealing is ultimately an offense against the God who rightfully owns everything and who has generously provided for us. So one of the first things that you'll see if you start reading the Bible from the beginning is that God is the rightful owner and maker of everything. That's the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. In other words, the whole universe is God's property. He made it, he designed it, and he maintains it. The second thing we see uh, in the second chapter of the Bible is that God generously provides for his people. So if you read Genesis chapter 2, the main theme is God puts Adam and Eve, the ancestors of the human race, in a garden and bountifully, abundantly provides for them. Right? God has provided for the whole human race by giving us this planet. Uh, Genesis 2 verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In other words, God put us here on earth and said, You're the caretakers. You're the managers of this part of my property. Cultivate it to its fullest potential and protect it from harm and corruption. That's what work it and keep it means. Work it or cultivate it and keep it or guard it. Uh, today, there are over 8 billion people on earth, and the earth produces enough food to feed every one of them and more. Isn't that amazing? Right? No other planet that we know of does anything like that. Now, many people still go hungry, but it's not because there isn't enough food on the whole earth. It's because people hoard and waste and otherwise misuse the resources God has given to us. There's many problems. Hunger is a legitimate problem in the world. But it's not because the earth isn't capable of producing enough food. Now, occasionally when people are talking about this commandment not to steal, someone asks a question like this. But what if my family is in desperate need and I have no money left? Would it be okay to steal to prevent my family from starving to death? Now, sometimes people ask questions like this one just because they like to debate. Right? One of those questions that comes up at 3 a.m. in a college dorm room, right? when none of the college students have really been in that situation. Right? But people like to debate these questions. But for some people in the world, this is a real question, and the Bible actually addresses this need and this concern in a few different places. Uh, so in the Old Testament laws, particularly the civil laws that were given to the people of Israel, God laid out two basic principles in order to address this concern. What about people who are hungry and starving to death? Uh, so the first principle God laid out is that property owners were required to leave some extra food available in the corners of their field so that anyone who needed it could come and get it. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 9 and 10 says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest, nor gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You are to leave them for the needy and the foreigner. Second, hungry people had the legal right to walk onto someone else's property and eat as much as they wanted, but they could not use any harvesting tools and they could not carry off anything in a container with them, right? Those things would be considered stealing. So Deuteronomy 23, 24, and 25 says this. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may, eat your feel, your, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. 
And in Mark 2.23, in the New Testament, Jesus' disciples were doing exactly this. They were walking through the, the grain fields uh, that probably didn't belong to any of them and munching on some grain as they walked. That was normal, acceptable. No one had an issue with that. The only reason it was a controversy is because they were doing it on Sabbath day. Now, these are interesting laws because they don't totally jive with certain American sensibilities about private property, right? It doesn't say private property, no trespassing or else, right? Uh, the Old Testament laws emphasize both private property and public responsibility, right? What was, think about it this way. God knew that some people in ancient Israel, widows, orphans, foreigners, the poor, would be particularly vulnerable. They wouldn't have enough to provide for themselves, and so he gave them the legal right to go out and gather what they needed to eat each day. It's what Ruth did in the book of Ruth, if you know that story. It wouldn't have been the best quality food. People had to do some work. They had to walk to the field, pick up the food or pick up the fruit that had fallen off the tree and bring it home. But if they needed it, it was there for them. It was the ancient version of a food pantry or even food stamps, right? It was God's way of providing for the needs of low-income people so they didn't have to resort to stealing in order to meet their family's basic needs. Now, getting back to the main point, if God is the rightful owner of everything and we are the caretakers or managers of his property, then our attitude toward our property and our money and our stuff should not be, this is mine, I've earned it, I can do whatever I want with it, and don't you dare suggest otherwise. In Leviticus 25, 23, God said to his people, the land is mine and you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, here's the general perspective of the Bible. The earth belongs to the Lord. He's given a tiny portion of it to each one of us, perhaps a little larger, perhaps a little smaller, but we all have a relatively tiny portion of it. And we're God's property managers on a temporary basis for as long as we're alive on this earth. And we'll ultimately answer to him for how we use what he has entrusted to us, right? That's, so that's the basic perspective that the Bible gives be, uh, with our property and our possessions. And that's sort of in the background of this command, don't steal. Um, and so stealing is an offense against God, not just because, uh, not just against someone else. It's an offense against God because we're saying, I don't trust your provision for me, Lord. And it's offense because we're taking what God has provided for someone else and grabbing it from them. And so hindering their, uh, uh, hindering that, right? So it's a bigger picture. So that's how this commandment is a manual that shows us God's design. Uh, but second, this commandment is a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, if I did a survey of people in Vernon and asked people, have you ever stolen? Have you ever disobeyed this command? What would most people say? No, I haven't done that. I've never robbed anyone. I've never embezzled funds. I'm an upstanding citizen. I even pay my taxes every year. But as with all the other commandments, God's word doesn't let us off the hook so quickly and easily. Stealing comes in many forms, some more obvious, some more hidden and insidious. Now we can all think of the more obvious forms of stealing many of which are illegal. Burglary, arson, fraud, bribery, embezzlement, identity theft, 
pickpocketing, shoplifting, destroying other people's property either intentionally or carelessly, not paying someone for a job that they completed, cheating and plagiarizing in school. Right? All those are sort of pretty obvious forms of stealing. But there are also more hidden and insidious forms of stealing. Here are a few. Uh, borrowing something and never giving it back. Right? Stealing from a friend. Finding something that belongs to someone else and keeping it instead of trying to find the rightful owner. Right? Now sometimes there's no way to find the rightful owner and it would be fine to take it. But sometimes it's got somebody's name on it, right? Or in a group project at school or at work, doing as little work as you can and taking as much credit as you can. That would be stealing from a colleague or a fellow student. Or how about reporting more hours to your employer than you actually worked? Or calling it a sick day when you just wanted to go to the beach? Stealing from the company. Now many people would say, but all these things are relatively small things. Sometimes nobody will even know. Yes, they are relatively small things, but God sees and God cares about faithfulness in the little things as well as the bigger things. Jesus said in Luke 16:10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. It's not just the results of our actions that matter, it's also the habits we are forming that matter. Now here are a few more forms of stealing. Cheating on your taxes, stealing from the government. Now you might say, but the government wastes so much money and spends it on so many unhelpful things. Very true. Governments can be guilty of stealing just as individuals can. But the Bible is quite clear that we still ought to pay our taxes. The Apostle Paul lived in the ancient Roman Empire, and the ancient Roman government was corrupt and wasteful and officially pagan. And yet, Paul said in Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In Matthew 17, 27, Jesus paid the temple tax. And, and Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What about something, another form? What about rack, racking up debts and not repaying them? Stealing from the bank or a creditor. On average, Connecticut residents have over $9,000 per person in outstanding credit card debt alone. That doesn't count student loans, mortgages, car loans, just credit card debt per person. So add up the number of people in the family and you get that, the average number. As a society, we've become very comfortable with spending above our means, borrowing against the future, and not having any plan to pay off what we owe. Compare that to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13:8. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, I don't think that verse means that no one should ever go into debt for any reason at all. Okay, I don't think that would be a right application of that verse because there's other, uh, it, economics is complicated. But what it does mean is that we should take our financial obligations seriously, right? We shouldn't just be taking out debt or credit with no intention and no plan to ever pay it back. Uh, about 15 or 20 years ago, I had a friend from college who became a Christian in his early 20s. And by that time in his life, he had racked up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Plus, he had student loans. But when he became a Christian, he realized that this was one area in his life 
There were actually several areas in his life that came to light where God wanted him to make some significant changes. And he told me, so one of the things that he did, which was very helpful, is he was honest about his situation with a couple of close friends. So he told me, I don't even know how much money I spend. I just know it runs out quickly. But I don't even know where my money is going. So one of the first things he did is he started keeping track of all the money that he spent. So he knew where his money was going. And one of the things that he learned was that every month he was spending $500 or so on takeout food or restaurants. And he realized this is an expense I can cut down on. Uh, it took him two or three years, but he paid off all his credit card debts one by one. And he felt a lot of freedom afterwards. Whereas in the beginning, he felt completely overwhelmed by debts that felt just, I don't even know where to start. Now, while we're on the topic of debt, it's not just people in debt who can be guilty of stealing. According to the Bible, business owners can also be guilty of stealing from their customers, charging exorbitant rates of interest, charging inflated prices for inferior products, taking advantage of ignorant customers who can't tell the difference. Back in the 16th century in Germany, Martin Luther referred to gentlemen swindlers who sit in office chairs and are called great lords and good citizens, yet with a great show of legality, they rob and steal. You see, stealing is not limited to illegal and criminal acts. Back in the fourth century, the Egyptian preacher John Chrysostom said this, indeed, this also is theft, not to share one's possessions. Perhaps this statement seems surprising to you, but do not be surprised. Not only the theft of others' goods, but also the failure to share one's own goods with others is theft and swindle and defrauding. Now you might say, well, how could he say that? Well, he could say that because he understood that God is the rightful owner of everything and that everything that we have has been simply entrusted by God to us so that we can manage it. Deuteron and he... And God wants us to be generous with a part of what he has given to us. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall give to the poor freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Ezekiel 18.7 and 8 says, The righteous person commits no robbery, but he also gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. Now, this doesn't mean that you should feel guilty whenever you spend money on yourselves more than for bare necessities. Right? 1 Timothy 6.17 says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Part of how we can honor God for his good gifts is by enjoying them. Right? We all like to enjoy a good meal. Right? We all like to enjoy a good piece of music or uh, artwork or uh, an outing right? that costs some money to, at least to drive there. Uh, so we can receive God's good gifts with thanksgiving, but here's the principle. We should be as eager to give to others as we are to enjoy things for ourselves. This doesn't mean we, sh we can't enjoy anything, but we should be as eager to give to others as we are to enjoy things for ourselves. And that should lead us to give away part of our money, our stuff, opening our home, whatever that might look like. Uh, uh, so think about this. Are we actively looking for ways and opportunities to give away our money and possessions in, way that will, in ways that will bless others who are struggling or who would benefit from what God has given to us? Or do we only think about what I want to buy for myself next, right? My Amazon wish list, which gets longer and longer this time of year, right? So all of those are forms of stealing. 
Martin Luther wrote, if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. And again, Stealing says we don't trust God that's to provide what's good for us through legitimate means. It robs what God has given to someone else and dishonors how God's provided for them. And when God's people steal, it shows that we have forgotten where our true treasure and inheritance lies. So in all those ways, this commandment is a mirror that shows us our sin. It shows us we've fallen short of this in one way or another, all of us. Third, this command is a window that shows us our Savior. How did Jesus fulfill and obey this command not to steal? Well, the obvious way is Jesus never took anything of value from others that wasn't rightfully his. And he was consistently generous with everything he had. But here's what I think is even more profound. What is stealing? Taking from someone else what rightfully belongs to them and does not rightfully belong to you. Is there anything that Jesus took from us that did not rightfully belong to him, but that rightfully belonged to us? The answer is yes, but all those things were completely undesirable. What did he take from us? that wasn't rightfully his, he took our sin. He took our condemnation and our guilt. He took our moral corruption. He took our death. He said, I'll take all those things, all the things that no one would ever want to steal for themselves. He said, no, I'll take what rightfully belongs to you, and I'll take it for me. It's like he stole all of our debts right? Not, it's not even quite the right way to use the word stealing, right? He took all the stuff that we don't want, that we want to get rid of. And he said, I'll take all that because you can't get rid of it by yourself. And in exchange, he freely gave us the best things that were rightfully his. Righteousness, salvation, eternal life, healing. Many preachers in the early church put it this way. He took what was ours in order to give us what was his. Jesus took what was ours so that he might give us what was his. And that's good news for all of us, including all of us who have stolen in one way or another. You know, one of the people, uh, there are two people who Jesus encountered in his earthly ministry who were thieves. Maybe there's others, but these are the two that came to my mind first. One of the people who Jesus encountered was a high-end thief. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was rich. And he had profited to the, at the expense of others. But for some reason, this guy who had profited at the expense of others and was sort of not a popular guy in town for that reason was attracted to Jesus. He climbed a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus stopped and looked at him and said, I want to come over to your house this afternoon. And Zacchaeus said, Okay, Jesus, come on over. And when Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus said this, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Luke 19.8. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Right? Jesus came for Zacchaeus, who had become rich at the expense of others by defrauding them or cheating them or overcharging them. And 
when Jesus came to Zacchaeus and when Zacchaeus received Jesus, his heart was changed. And so he wanted to be generous with his money. He wanted to pay people back and make things right with those he had stolen from. And then just a few days later, Jesus was crucified between two low-end thieves. Luke calls them criminals. Mark calls them robbers. In other words, they weren't petty thieves. They were violent criminals. They were mobsters, gangsters, revolutionaries. And at the beginning of the day, they were both railing at Jesus and cursing him. But by the end of the day, one of them changed his tune. One of them said, we're getting exactly what we deserve. But this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offered this thief who repented, whose efforts to rob and steal had only earned him a death sentence. Jesus offered him an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. What Jesus offers to each one of us is better than anything that anyone could ever steal on this earth. He offers us an eternal inheritance in his eternal kingdom that will never pass away. You see, the invitation for all of us is to come to Jesus and acknowledge how we've fallen short and receive his forgiveness like Zacchaeus and the thief on the cross did to admit our sin and to receive his grace. One song puts it this way, grace and peace, oh, how can this be? For lawbreakers and thieves, for the worthless the least. You have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without hope, without rest. Oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. So this command is a window that shows us our Savior. Finally, it's a, it's a guide that shows us God's path. So I want to wrap up today with a verse and a story. The verse is Ephesians 4.28, which we read earlier in the service. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul was writing to the Christian believers in Ephesus, which included people who used to steal, right? That's why he says, let the thief no longer steal. Don't keep stealing. But instead, he tells them on the basis of the new life you've received from Christ Jesus, do two things. Number one, work hard. Do honest work with your own hands. Second, share with anyone in need. Now again, most of the Ten Commandments are phrased as warnings. Right? Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. But there's always a flip side to the command. Right? Honor. Don't murder. Honor life. Honor every human life that God has made. Don't lie. Always tell the truth and speak the truth. Don't steal. Honor people and their possessions. Paul emphasizes not just God's no to stealing, but his yes to hard work and generous giving. That's the kind of life he wants us to live in obedience to this commandment. It's not just to avoid stealing in the obvious forms. Not even just to avoid stealing in the more hidden forms, but to actively seek to work to benefit others. Again, whether you get paid for it or not, that we can use our energy and time and skills in ways that, that benefit and help other people, and to give generously to those in need. One preacher said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. 
How do we avoid worshiping money? Well, one of the ways is to actively give some of it away. That shows that it's not the thing that controls us above all else. Uh, also, let me just encourage you, if you need help financially, if you're in debt like my friend was uh, many years ago, let me encourage you to ask. We all need help at times. And asking is not stealing. Asking is not a sin. When you have a genuine need, it is not a sin. It is a, in fact, it can be a, a good and important thing to ask for help because we all need help in one way or another, whether it's financial or otherwise. Finally, let me end with a story of someone who was transformed by Jesus Christ and his generous grace. Uh, so this is a story that Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City for many years, told. Um, there was a young woman who worked for a TV network in New York. She was a relatively new employee, and she made a very bad mistake, the kind of mistake that would normally get you fired and might have ended her career in that, uh, might have ended her career. But her boss, who had been with the company for a long time and who had a lot of credibility with everyone, took the blame on her behalf. He said, I didn't train her, I didn't prep her. If you're going to be mad at somebody, be mad at me, but don't fire her. When he did that, he lost some credibility, but she kept her job. So she went in to try to thank him. And he said, no, don't thank me. Don't worry about it. And she said, but I don't get it. I've had plenty of bosses in the past take credit for things that I've done. I've never had a boss take the blame for something that I did wrong. Human nature is to take credit when people under you accomplish things it's, and to blame them when they fail or even to blame them when you have failed. I've never seen anyone do this before, she said. Why did you do it? And he said, because I'm a Christian and my whole life is based on a man who took the blame for me. And that shapes the way that I live my life now. So she was telling the story to the pastor and she said, that's why I came to your church. I don't know if I believe all the things that you believe, but I'm intrigued. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, when we understand what God has given to us in Jesus Christ, we can give generously in ways that, e that pe even people who would never walk into a church on their own would look at and say, why in the world would you do that? And then it's an opportunity to say, because of what Jesus did for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for each of your commandments that give us very practical instructions for life and are, are good and the world would be so much better uh, if we all obeyed them, but we also recognize that you gave us these commandments to show us that we have fallen short, to show us that we are, are all sinners and we all need your grace and forgiveness and we are not righteous simply on our own. So Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for where we have fallen short in this way. We pray that you would renew our hearts so that we might be diligent workers and generous givers because of 
the work that you've accomplished on our behalf and because of the grace that you've generously poured out upon us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.